Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I'm, I'm so thankful that uh, uh, Gary Mintz was able to connect us uh, of the uh, New York Giants Preservation Society to our following guests, and he is a retired teacher and lawyer. Uh, right now out in Long Island, but originally from Brooklyn, uh, and that is Joe Margolin. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. And the way that we always like to, to start, you know, we're, we're trying to get the atmosphere of the era. Uh, and so for, for any time uh, we have somebody who's a first-time guest, We'd like you to start with both your your general roots as well as your baseball roots. Well, my general roots is I, I was born in Brooklyn, and at the age of three, uh, my family, my parents, we escaped to Long Island. Uh, I, I put that in quotation marks. Uh, my father was not a city person originally. He was a country person, so we found ourselves out in the, really the sticks of Long Island when I was three years old where I spent, where I stayed until I was 14. When I was 14, we moved to Queens, and uh, I then went to Bayside High School. Uh, subsequently, I went to Queens College, and ultimately, uh, after a few other uh, degrees, uh, I have five degrees after five, I went to law school. And uh, then I got into something really serious that I liked, uh, grandparenting. So that uh, uh, that that that's the that really is the important background. Now, of course, of course. during the, during my childhood, I was a fanatical Brooklyn Dodger fan. Uh, they were they I literally worshipped the team. And although we lived on the island, my father's office was in Brooklyn. It was in, he was an attorney also. And uh, during the summer vacations, we worked out a schedule where at least five or six times I was at Ebbets Field. And uh, I met the Dodgers. In fact, as I'm sitting here right now, uh, as I'm Sam, as I'm sitting here, I'm looking at a signed, completely signed baseball signed by all of the 55 Dodgers. Oh, wow. That's remarkable. Uh, and, right. And, it, and, it, and it's so it's so interesting in the context to think about. Obviously, people weren't necessarily thinking about it at the time, although there were obviously echoes of what Walter O'Malley was planning and also trying to negotiate with Robert Moses. But you know, waiting seven basically at the time seventy years for a World Series title, and then within two to three years they're gone. Yeah, it it it, it actually it, it killed my interest in Major League Baseball when they moved. Uh, as I mentioned to you in a prior conversation, uh, uh, I, I really don't follow major league, minor league baseball. I do attend. I'm a, I'm a, I take my grandchildren to about five or six uh, Cyclones games every every summer, 
and uh, I do follow the Cyclones and occasionally looking at the Mets, the, the parent club. But uh, if you were a Brooklyn Dodger fan, there was no backup team. There was no, you know, some people I guess went to went to the Yankees. Of course, those people, those people, I can't, you know, I can't justify why they would do that. Uh, and some people, you know, went to the Mets, which was supposed to be a hybrid between the Giants and the Dodgers. But there was a whole different character to Ebbets Field. It was all its own. Uh, so, well, let's uh, let's I go down know. that road. Let's let's you know you were three years old when you moved out of Brooklyn. Like you said, your dad was kind of hadn't. So so where where did you say your dad was from again in the country? Well, he was born upstate New York and uh, born and raised on a farm, but. Uh, when he became, when he grew up, when he got older, he practiced law. He practiced law in Brooklyn for over forty years, and uh, but where, he moved us. He moved us. Pardon me. Where, I'm sorry. He was born and raised in Monticello. He was one of the oh, wow. uh, one of the one of the original Jewish families that settled in Monticello, were the Margolin family. So when he, uh, you said he did business in Brooklyn, did he move directly to Brooklyn himself, or was he commuting at the time? No, he always commuted. Before he, commute, except before he for, does. Well, no, when, when he was when, when he was when he was alive, he's not alive anymore. He passed away in 1959. But uh, my parents lived in Brooklyn. I was born, and I, I at the age of three, they decided it was time to go find greener pastures for us to grow up in. So we found ourselves out on Long Island. He commuted in, in at a time when the Long Island Railroad didn't even have anything resembling air conditioning. So that, in fact, one of the funniest stories, not funny, one of the most unusual stories occurred on a, on a, day, on a summer day when I was put on the train by my mother, the Long Island Railroad. She put me on the train right in the front car near the conductor or the train or the, the operator, and uh, it was the Long Island Road, and I was told to sit there and uh, get off at uh, Flatbush Avenue or Atlantic Avenue. That it's, it was called either one, Flatbush or Atlantic. And uh, just sit there, and that my father would greet me at the tra- uh, in Brooklyn. So the train, uh, I didn't know about how long it was going to take. I was a little kid at the time, and I just sat there. I was thinking about the ball game. Actually, I was going over my baseball cards and the statistics involved. And uh, finally, the train pulls in, and we're getting off, and I see hundreds of policemen running towards the train, running to, and I'm actually in my direction, and I had no idea what this was about. And then I found out that the train ride had been del- was longer because along the way the train had gotten on the wrong track, and it was heading it was heading towards Manhattan. So there was a delay, which I didn't even realize. I was a little kid. And my father, who was a criminal lawyer in the city, had many, many friends who were court officers at the uh, the criminal court in Brooklyn. And so they actually, they didn't know what happened to the train either. So that when the train came in, I was greeted by my father and about 50 court officers and uh, uh, driven over to Ebbets Field. Uh, Scared the life out of me. (laughs) And, uh, but, uh, you know, I thought maybe... At that time, that day, I must have been about seven years old. Wow! I had to be about seven, seven or eight born, years born, old. And born, born in four. That means it's about 1950, 1951. Right, right in the early fifties, right around then. I, it was, it was like my second train ride to Brooklyn by myself to, to see the Dodgers. 
if you're if you're positive that you're you're uh, seven years old, then it was the year of the shocker around the world at some point in the middle of the, I just, I'd be interested to find out like uh, what specific do you, you know I know it's just there's so many details uh, to remember, but do you remember about the game? Do you remember whether the Dodgers won? Do you remember about that specific game? Are we talking about that game, uh, the game, the game where uh, supposedly or not supposedly? Because I have met uh, what's his name? I've met Prager. What's the guy's first name? Uh, Prager, uh, Gary, Miss Gary Mintz's friend Prager, who wrote the book discussing how Sal Evers was placed up in that platform or that section of the polo grounds and was stealing the signs, which led to the results of that infamous game. And uh, I later had a chance to talk. I even bumped into, uh, at a social gathering, uh, I bumped into Ralph Branker and um, asked, a couple, asked about that. Uh, uh, that. That To Brooklyn Dodger fans, that's a game that lived in infamy when it occurred. And that all that's happened over the last what, 60 years is we've now found out that uh, Leo DeRocha lived up to his potential. And uh, I don't, I don't view it. Some people may view it the shot heard around the world, the greatest game in history. It's very similar to what happened this past year with the sign stealing in the uh, major leagues the last two years. There's no difference, okay? Well, nobody. I think they should. I, about, I mean, retroactively, obviously, uh, the the narrative is not to go all the way back in time and take things like that away. But every time that I hear people talk about taking the World Series away from Houston, all I can think of is you're not taking that pennant away. So what's the point? Right. Well, yeah, yeah. You're, not you're exactly right. You move on. If you were a Brooklyn Dodger fan, remember, we, the Brooklyn Dodger fans were the one that came up with, you have to wait till next year. And uh, you move on. You take what you got. But you, down the road, you know that you, you have a belief that good will triumph. And in the case of this, the Dodgers in 1955, good triumphed. Right. Exactly. Good triumphs. And, and you know, they finally got a few ba- breaks along the way when thinking about it. Now, mind you, when looking at that Game 7, and, and I want to get back to some other things before we go down the Game 7 tangent, but I just wanted okay. to say that uh, Mickey Mantle was not in the lineup for the Yankees, but Jackie Robinson was not in the lineup for for the Dodgers. So it kind of evened out in many ways, even if, you know, Jackie didn't have the type of power that Mickey had. Uh, but I don't want to get too deep into game five right now. I want to go back a little bit into your family history. Um, in, okay. in terms of your dad going back, what, what I'm wondering about is that once he got a job in Brooklyn, is that when he moved to Brooklyn and also – uh, as a follow-up to that, when did uh, he and your mom meet? Oh, uh, God, boy, you ask an interesting question. I never really thought about that too much. Uh, uh, he, he had his own practice. He was a lawyer. He opened an office on Court Street in Brooklyn. And he had a I think at the first, when he first opened, he had a partner, although I don't remember the partner's name. Uh, and he met my mother i know up in the up in the, the catskills at one of these hotels where they had these today we would call them like can, can uh, I, singles can I just throw it out before before you continue about this story i just want to say that this i believe uh this is I, I, last week was my aunt and uncle barbara and stan who met in the catskills as well so this is the second straight uh podcast that that there's a story of somebody meeting in the catskills <laughs> yeah it, it, 
Actually, uh, it, it, it was quite common. It was, that's where the singles gathered back in those days. Monticello was the hub of, of uh, Jewish civilization, particularly in the summertime and in vacation times. So uh, my mother was originally from Pennsylvania, but she, her, she moved to New York as she got older and uh, met my father. I don't know the exact year and time. Uh, they were married about 20 years, and uh, he died in 1959. So that uh, uh, I'd have to go look up the specific dates on something like that. But uh, <laughs> he was he he was not a native. They, neither one of them were native New York City people. Right. Although they they became New York City people. And uh, my father, nobody in my family other than my mother's brother, my uncle, was the only other person that I know of that was, had any real interest in baseball on a regular basis. He and I would talk baseball all the time. But my father, my father took me to games. My father was an umpire in the Little League. My father, you know, did what a father was supposed to do. But he was not, and he was not a. a, a diehard, enthusiastic, even though he knew the O'Malley family. His office was shared by uh, Walter O'Malley's father-in-law. And uh, even though all of that occurred, my father was not a diehard baseball fan. So that, uh, but he wouldn't let me, it wouldn't prevent me from doing it. Me, he he helped me in every way because he knew the Dodgers were everything. So so he saw the passion in you and made sure... Follow through with that passion. That's true, and I'm grateful for that because it follows through to this day. Uh, although the world is filled with tons of news, although we have a virus that's affecting our civilization, and although we have uh, international problems, I'm still waiting for December for the Hall of Fame to undo the great injustice regarding Gil Hodges. Yeah, and, and so am I. Um, and and you bring up like usually lately, I've that's how I've started all these podcasts is, is having to do with COVID nineteen. But I had such tunnel vision with knowing you you had such a, a wealth of knowledge of the era that I got right into that. So uh, before we continue about that, I want to ask you how is your you and your family doing through all of this? Fine. I mean, uh, we're locked up like everybody is. You know, I, I'm not a kid. I'm not a younger person. So. I'm what they call one of the vulnerable people, and my my wife and I are both senior citizens, uh, so that we're for the most part, except for a, a, a walk every day, which I'm really can do. I'm, I'm locked up in my house, uh, and I do a lot of reading. And uh, uh, I, I one of the things I do is I speak to organizations a lot. Uh, I, as a, it was one of my retirement activities. In fact, I spoke to an organization online two weeks ago about the Brooklyn Dodgers. I gave a talk for about an hour on the Brooklyn Dodgers, entitled the Dodgers, more than just the baseball team. So that uh, I try to remain as active in those activities as I can. Well, that's great that you're spreading the, the, uh, the, the gospel, if you will, <laughs> about the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that's what we're doing here with uh, Bedford and Sullivan. And I'm happy to hear that you guys are staying healthy and safe one way or another, uh, and that you're able to get the, the knowledge out during all this time when, when people are not able to gather to hear you speak about it in person. Um, so I want, I want to try to get to the bottom of what day that was, that, that you took that ride. Now, we, we, 
It sounds like oh. you're pretty sure that you were seven years old. So yeah, was, I, do you remember anything about that specific game uh, from that, that Long Island Railroad story uh, that, yeah. that you and, and as many court officials went to Ebbets Field after that? Well, I remember that it was a very hot day. I remembered my mother's instructions telling me, just sit there, don't do anything. When the train gets to Brooklyn, your father will get on the train, and you'll be there. I guess she probably said you'll be there in about an hour or a little less. And I just, you know, at seven years of age, uh, I wasn't going to go running around. It was a whole different time period, as as you're well aware. I mean, it wasn't uh, there wasn't a great deal to be worried about in terms of uh, other kinds of influences that might, you know, disturb me. I was sitting three feet away from the guy who was riding, driving the train. So I just sat there quietly, and uh, when I didn't even realize that the train was not where it was supposed to be on time. I had no idea. And when it eventually stopped, I, I was told my father would come, and he did come on. It, I didn't quite understand why he brought the entire police force with him, but... Uh, uh, yeah. But that's what happened. And then when I got off the train, they sort of, you know, they applauded a little bit. And and then they took us, they took um, both of us over to, to Bedford Avenue, to the Ebbets Field, Bedford Avenue, and so who, uh, watched the game. I was just happy I didn't miss much of the game. Who pitched that day for the Dodgers? Pardon me? Who pitched that day for the Dodgers? Oh, I... I I'm not sure if it was Preacher Row or not. That I'd have to check. I, I know that it was one of those games when I was seven, seven years old where Row was thrown out of the game. Do you remember who years. they played? Where, where they, excuse me, what, remember what? Do you remember who they played? No, but I do remember that there was an incident which involved Preacher Rowe, and he, he was he was knocked out of the game. Now, for the, those who don't know about anything about Preacher Rowe, he had some unusual pitching characteristics, uh, including a ball that uh, was very often thought to be very moist when it was thrown. And huh. uh, and uh, he was taken out of the game because they were beating him. For reason, I don't know, they were hitting him. And he didn't take that well. And as he was coming off the mound, he grabbed it, took his baseball glove, and threw it right into the stands. Actually, I don't know if he was aiming for the O'Malley box or whatever, but the glove came right past my face, right past it. And it hit the guy right next to me who was in the adjoining box. And uh, eventually an official from the stadium came up from the Dodgers they asked if they could, he would give the glove back, uh, and he said Preacher Rowe was requesting it. And uh, eventually he did give the glove back. He also got free tickets to another game, a baseball bat, and a free baseball glove, which, you know, as even as a kid, I said, boy, I wish I had gotten a glove. But uh, that incident, I, I remember vividly. And it probably, I think, was the same day that I had my trip with the, with the court officers and police to the game. All right, so was this a weekday or weekend? Oh, this was a weekday. It was a weekday. A week? um, yeah. Well, most of the games we went to were on days when my father was uh, not in court. Or if he was in court, it right. was in the afternoon. So most most games tended to be day games. And they tended to be... Oh yeah, there were people in the stands. It was it was a great. Ebbets Field always had a good. I never went to Ebbets Field with bad crowds. I mean, uh, 
when Walter O'Malley moved the Dodgers to, to, to Los Angeles, the Dodgers were a money-making team, and they were operating in the black. So the Dodgers, it wasn't like I went to an empty, empty stadium. Uh, there was always a lot of people, and everybody knew everybody, and everybody knew your name, and everybody talked to you, and it was, it was like one gigantic happy family. June or July, you think? That game, I, 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 I venture to say that it was probably late July. Late July. All right, let's see. Yeah. Row. We got to look for row. All right. Um, was it a Friday? I don't remember. Yeah, if I would have known, I might have gone and looked. I tried to look it up, but I, I don't remember. You know that that. So I keep, I keep that, looking for road names. Come years up a lot. Was it? Uh, uh, was an extra innings game. Do you remember whether it went extra innings? I don't know if it was an extra innings game. I don't. I don't think okay. so. I don't. Re- I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember a lot of. No, I don't think it was an extra innings game. Well, so far right now, um, I'm getting Friday, July 20th against St. Louis. Dodgers win five to two. Rowe is the the winner. Uh, that sounds good. Indeed. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, it, you're saying it probably wasn't uh, an extra inning game, meaning it couldn't have been July 4th against the Giants, which was actually a doubleheader one way or the other. Um, but the question is, did Rowe win or lose? Now, do you remember when the think, Dodgers won this game? I tend to think they were winning, and that's why he was so upset about being taken out. I right I, no I don't so, remember so I was, was a little he, kid he got taken, but I have he a got, feeling he got taken right of course yeah I have a feeling that maybe somebody had mentioned how he was pitching and because he was and not he, happy about taking it sorry I was going to say was 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 he do you think he was um, pitching long enough to get the win yeah. I think he was. Okay. I think he really didn't want to leave that game. Back in, back in those days, it really took a lot to knock a picture out, particularly if they were winning. And because uh, they want, remember, complete games and winning, uh, winnings amount a game amount of games won were a lot more important than it is today. Today, it's innings pitched, right. and how many pitches did he throw? Uh, was the wind hitting him at the wrong direction? That's today. But back then. It really took a lot to get a picture, to, you know, particularly if they were winning, to voluntarily say, sure, take me out, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So they right. probably might have said, somebody might have said something about, you, you know, you understand what I'm saying about his pitches. And uh, mm-hmm. he was not happy. And I could see he was not happy. And, uh, in fact, anybody who was sitting in a box over there would have known that he was not happy. And uh, I have a feeling he won the game, but, you know, and he also won back his gloves, so it wasn't such a bad day for him in any case. Well, I, it, the game that I, uh, I, I uh, just, I guess this was July 20th, he pitched the whole game. So I'm going to have to keep looking for, for yeah, at I some point. He, but we're not gonna, he didn't we're pitch, not gonna, didn't we're pitch not gonna, the whole uh, game. Uh, uh, you, right. No, you, you're, saying, you're saying you remember vividly that he got taken out. So I'm going to have to keep doing some research and see where we can, sometime in the hot days of the summer, see if we can right. hone in on this, this uh, game that Rogue was most likely the winner but got taken out. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's go more into the relationship with Walter O'Malley. So uh, what what was that like? Uh, let's start with the broad strokes. 
I didn't personally know him. All I know is I wondered why, uh, you know, I, I knew we had good seats. I mean, uh, that was obvious. And uh, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't that we were treated very special. It wasn't that. It was just that, uh, I, you know, I, I was a young kid, so, you know, uh, I, I knew I wasn't in the bleachers. And I knew that uh, they they said hello to us a lot, uh, but uh, other than that, uh, I focused more on the game. And I never met O'Malley, and as, as history turns out, I'm happy I didn't meet O'Malley. And although there are many theories about how he really wasn't to blame on what happened, I don't believe that for one second. And uh, uh, it's uh, it's nice that it, I, it's nice that I got to some extent good seats, but it's not the ultimate the ultimate uh, event. They're leaving Brooklyn was not nice. I mean. Uh, I was uh, I was devastated by that, and, and most people, most of us, were devastated by that. It was like a, like entering into a period of national mourning. Right. And so, what what was your dad's take, having known the man, to to what seemed to be both a, a business uh, relationship, but but personal enough to to have a rapport. Well, uh, without trying to be uh, morose or morbid anyway, my dad's take, whatever it might have been, I'm not sure whether he wasn't a diehard baseball fan, and he, he pretty, did what, pretty much went to games because I wanted to go to the games, and he took me, and unfortunately he died the following year. So that uh, whatever his feelings were, my father's, they 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 went to the grave with him. And, well, I, and, uh, and I know it's been so many years, but I still want to say uh, sorry for that, considering that it 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 sounds like he died very early in your life. So um, I was I was fourteen. So yeah, we we don't need to go too deep into that one way or the other. Uh, but whatever you would like to elaborate on, uh, please go ahead. How how did that uh, come to be? Well, it, it didn't affect me in terms. The only thing it did is it. It, we moved the following year after he died, and we moved from uh, out on the island back to Queens, uh, and uh, it, it, that that changed my life a lot because living at uh, living in Queens was a, a lot different. The schools operated differently. The city schools. I I went from a Long Island high school to a ba- to a city high school, and uh, I met. I went to a high school for, of two thousand students to a high school of five thousand students, and. I went from out on the island to the city, which gave me, in those days, you could travel anywhere on a New York City subway or a New York City bus for 15 cents. 15 cents got you a token, and you could go anywhere. I could go to the northern Bronx. I wouldn't go to the Bronx. Bad people lived in the Bronx called the Yankees. Uh, And uh, I could go to Manhattan. I could go anywhere. And I could go to Brooklyn, which I did, because my grandmother lived right near Ebbets Field. So that... uh, uh, I still, I still was, and my uncle was right there too. So I, I was still in the ballpark, so to speak. Close yeah, to the I, ballpark. I want to go down. I want to go down that rabbit hole because obviously Evansville didn't get torn down until uh, at some point in 1960. But we do. Speaking of Long Island, we do have a 631 area code waiting on the line. So I just wanted to to see who this was. Hello, you're here on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Hey, Sam Gary Mintz, how are you? Gary, hey, what's Joe. going on? <laughs> How's everything? I had a feeling. Uh, just a few comments. Um, first of all, I was looking and about this uh, preacher row throwing, kicking his uh, glove into the stands. 
1954 at the Stan Musial hit a home run, maybe, against the Cardinals? Maybe. Know. You know, they very well could be. Gary, I found, I don't even remember what happened two hours ago. So uh, it very well want, could be. Uh, I don't want to steal your thunder, Joe, but uh, Sam, you need to know, Joe and his esteemed wife um, brought a uh, law-related education um, class or pro- program into my school which I uh, took and kind of ran with it. And during the course of the 19 and 20 years I've been doing it, I have done um, three trials on the Brooklyn Dodgers and with Joe in mind, of course. And uh, one of them was that the uh, borough of Brooklyn was suing the Dodgers for leaving uh, Brooklyn, and that was very, very well received. And uh, the other one was the 51 book. And Joe, I don't know how you cannot know Prager's first name. It's the same name as your son. Come on. Oh, Josh, Josh you're right. I know five (laughs) Pragers, Gary. That's the problem. (laughs) And the last one, which I thought Joe was actually going to retire with, you know, he basically begged me to write one on getting Gil Hodges into the Hall of Fame. And Sam, Joe has made it his mission never to go to Cooperstown until that day occurs, which might happen I think they're voting maybe at the end of this year. So it would be in 2020 with uh, Derek Jeter be a big New York thing. Yeah, well, yeah that so would you be, guys have a great be, talk. It was great. To, I don't want to steal your thunder, but yeah. uh, the podcast sounds great. You guys be well, okay? Much appreciated. Okay, thank you, Gar. Take good care, guys. Thank you, Gar. Talk to Bye. You. I'm here. Um, so, oh, I, by the way, a couple of Sam, yes. Sam, Sam, if I may say, Gary's probably Please. accurate on that date because if there was, I didn't go, to, I just didn't like to go to any games that were coming into Ebbets Field. It is highly likely that I went to a St. Louis game because one of the players that out of town players that I really wanted to see from time to time was Stan Musial. And right. uh, right. Musial and Red Chandix, because Musial was the only other first baseman in the major leagues that really came close to Gil Hodges. They were they, they were like in the same quality, same character. So it's I would have gone to a St. Louis game. Uh, I wouldn't have gone to you know some of the other teams. I I don't think I would have been well, interested in going to see a Chicago game. Well, what's interesting, I think that. Uh, even in the 1951 season that I was talking about, we did hone in on, on St. Louis, but uh, I think Roe uh, uh, picked the entire game. So yeah. what's interesting, yeah. though, you said you said that you were pretty sure you were seven years old, but it could be a possibility that you were 10 years old. Or nine. It could have been nine uh, right. because my birthday is in December, so I could, I could have been nine years old at the time. Oh, I see. Right, right, okay. So, yeah, you would have been nine years old, 1954. Um, I will have to go down that year at some point as well. Um, so I, I, wa- I want to go down the Gil Hodges path um, because he's, he's my favorite. Uh, somebody asked me point blank the other day, who's your favorite Brooklyn Dodgers? Dodger, and I, I had to say Gil Hodges. Um, and so what, yeah, you know what, Let, let's, I, I, I wanted to – I really liked what you were talking about regarding Ebbets Field after the Dodgers left because I think that's some interesting material one way or the other. But uh, I don't – I want to give Gil his due. Um, 
go ahead. We always like to to spout off the reasons why he should be on the Hall of Fame, and, you know, uh, as well as as other you know contemporaries that have already made it that that are comparable. Um, but but you know, whatever whichever direction you want to go to sell his case, have at it. Well, like uh, okay, it's not it's not difficult to sell. I mean. Uh, first of all, Gary was right. I, I will not go to the, and I call it, by the way, the Hall of Shame. I will not go to the Hall of Shame until Gil Hodges is admitted. And it's not a difficult case to sell. Can you, When you think of the players that are admitted into the Hall of Fame today, what what you hear, you, you hear, do they have asterisks next to their name? How many drug accusations were made against them? Have they committed any violent crimes recently? And then you go back and you think about the guy who wasn't let into the Hall of Fame yet, Gil Hodges. Gil Hodges exemplifies the character of baseball. Baseball was, is a national sport. It was supposed to build sportsmanship, character, and, you know, the things that parents wanted kids to grow up with. And Gil Hodges was that, a man of a tremendous character, a war hero. A man, a man, when he went into a slump in 1952, the Diocese of Brooklyn had a day, had a whole series of prayers. They they prayed for Gil Hodges. I mean, we're talking about a man who there were no bad things to say about him. The only thing that Leo DeRoche could say is when Gil, when Gil was uh, became a manager, I think it was, uh, nice guys finish last. Uh, that's all he could say. I mean, Hodges was a a really the kind of person you wanted your young kids to grow up like. Then he had statistics. He was not a marginal player. He was a major player. He had, what, 370 home runs. He had all kinds of fielding records. Gold. I don't know if they called them golden gloves there. Here is a man who did everything you were supposed to do, and nobody, nobody to this day, knows why he's not in the Hall of Fame. Now, when Phil Rizzuto didn't get into the Hall of Fame, some people attributed it to the fact that, well, he had personality conflicts with the press and some of the other people in baseball. That's not the case here. I mean, Gil Hodges was red, white, blue, true blue, a great person. In fact, how many ball players have a bridge named after them? There's a bridge named after him. And uh, I think that I think that it's a great, great injustice. I happened to meet Mrs. Hodges at the 1950. The uh, the Cyclones had a 50, 50th reunion at MCU Park for the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, and uh, I was I was there. With, I met Carl Erskine. I said, "Oh, well, I had met him once before." Erskine, Roebuck, Clem Labine, Shotgun Shuba. A whole bunch of players. And Mrs. Hodges, who's who's still alive, she's still alive, and she was there also. And Gil Hodges was in many ways like the entire Dodger team at that time. These were people who became part of the community that rooted for them. They lived in the community. That, all of them. Hodges was a resident of Brooklyn. Duke Snyder, who came from Avocado Land out in California, was a resident of Brooklyn. They used to all get on the bus or in a car and go from go from Brooklyn to to the, to the field. 
the, and they all had the, the local. They all participated in the local community activities during the summer in Brooklyn when there was a block party or anything. You could find Hodges, Snyder. They were out there. They were out there participating with their neighbors. Hodges was one of them. He was a man of the community, and when he became a manager, they felt the same way. He did the same kind of job. He was in every sense. Uh, there's a word. There's a word in Yiddish. The word is mensch. He was a mensch. That he certainly was. How did I do with that? How did I do with that? No, you did. Sam, Sam, sorry. (laughs) You did fantastic. It was it 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 nailed uh, every single element uh, perfectly. And there's so many different. It's very nuanced as to why he's not in the Hall of Fame, and all these different weird breaks and 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 uh mindset of, of and, and it's interesting you bring up Rizzuto because maybe uh some of the some of the the writers had the same thing with the Yankees at some point that the idea that you can't let them all in and it's like well no it's, it, it doesn't matter you know you can't let all the Dodgers in specifically with, with when it comes to Gill um, but if they all were warranted of being in the Hall of Fame, they all should be in the Hall of Fame, and that's that's just what it is. There's all these different reasons why they didn't vote for him at, in the first place, and then you know the the story about Ted Williams and the Roy Campanella vote, uh, and and then the last you know the last time that he was up for Tommy Lasorda was even on the committee and he didn't get in. Um, it, there, there really needs to be, and especially now that baseball's priorities have changed, you know, we need to continue, knowing the vote is coming in December, we need to continue to campaign for this because it, it, it has to, you know, how many more chances can, can one guy get? Uh, and, and, and here is another one. So, what to do, you know? You're right. I mean, it, it, it is an absolute travesty because he represents the game better than practically anybody who's in there. Even even Snyder once once wrote, he could not understand why his, his good friend and teammate, he couldn't understand why he wasn't in the Hall of Fame. It did not make any sense to Duke Snyder at all. And uh, and it didn't make it to the other Dodgers. Tom Seavers, who wasn't a Dodger but who was a Met, uh, can't couldn't believe it. Also, and uh, and I don't care about that. Oh, too many of that. I mean, nobody hesitated from electing Ruth and Gehrig to the Hall of Fame, and they played together, and they were in the lineup together, and there were a few others from that lineup that made it. Not, I don't buy that argument at all. I, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's something that nobody wants to, you know, investigate and go because I don't think there is anything to investigate. I think it's, I think now it's unfortunate that a bunch of people who the only way they'll know about him is by looking at films. They won't know him personally, but he was one of those players you also really had to see. I mean, I think for a while he even maybe it's not true anymore, but he held the record for Grand Slam home runs in a World Series. I think it was, oh, some phenomenal number, like 13, 14 Grand Slam home runs. I mean, he played in so many World Series, and uh, and yet he just didn't get in. He played on a team that, that, that's legendary. I mean, uh, they let, I mean, Jackie Robinson was his, the, the man he played double plays with was, was Robinson. So that, uh, um, uh, 1949, it's, it's disgusting. 
1949, 115 RBIs. 1950, 113 RBIs. 1951, 103 RBIs. 1952, 102 RBIs. 1953, 122 RBIs. 1954, 130 RBIs. 1905, 102 RBIs. And even at and, that point, and, and wait a minute, and, and don't forget, don't forget, Sam. He hit in the two winning runs in that fifty-five series. Yes, he hit. Yes, no. It's something that doesn't get spoken about enough is the fact that Gil Hodges got both runs in Game Seven, and and that's a good segue uh, <laughs> that we were talking about going back to to Game Seven. You know, Joe, it's remarkable what. I'll I'll look up exactly how long that game took, Game 7 of the World Series in 1955. But it's amazing how two to three hours can live in infamy. Well, not really infamy, but you know what I mean. Like like for so long can can matter so much, just this little segment of, of time. Well, that's because the Dodgers became the emblem, the representative, the emblem for the idea about the underdog, and that there's always hope for the underdog. They were never, they were always the underdog in every situation, and then finally, and everybody, you know, would root for underdogs. You like to see an underdog. They did it, and uh, they did it. They did it honestly by playing good baseball. And uh, I think I think that it, that's one of the reasons. And they kept on persisting. Everybody knew that they they didn't give up. They didn't trade away the entire team every year. They 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 just kept it. You know, today, how many how many teams keep together today like they kept together? It was like uh, like a, literally like a band of brothers. And uh, it really it developed an esprit de corps. Uh, it was it was like uh, I don't know how to describe it, but I re- I just when when the victory occurred, most of us were stunned beyond belief. Not that we didn't think it was possible, but finally we realized we had arrived. May I also say uh, two hours and forty four minutes? Um, attendance was sixty two thousand four hundred sixty five at Yankee Stadium, October fourth, nineteen fifty five, and. There's something that nobody ever talked about, but I heard on the national broadcast. So the, the whoever I forget the, the names of the guys, but I they don't they don't readily avail uh, have available the, the Vince Scully. Uh, maybe maybe that's part of a Dodger thing you'd have to buy uh, somewhere out there. I'm sure you can probably find it. They don't have the Yankees broadcast, but what I was able to find on YouTube was the national broadcast. And and a fan runs out to Duke Snyder uh, right before, I believe, the seventh inning when he's out in in uh, right field. He would be in right field, is that correct? Or center field? Yeah, it might have been because he was having very bad knee problems at that time. Or was so he might have he might have actually been in right field. Hold on, let me see. Let's I'd have see. to check, but he might have been. Yeah, I'm going to check right now, too, at least with the – well, Carl Frillo started the game. Duke Snyder was in center field in this game. So I may, okay. I may have just been uh, uh, misnomering. Um, but I'm trying to see whether things got shifted around and whether I was right about that later. Because uh, Sandy, you know, I believe when Sandy Amoros came in, Junior, Jim, yeah, okay, hold on. Jim Gilliam moved from left field to second base. Okay. So I think right. at this point, 
uh, Duke Snyder was in center field the entire game. So a fan ran out to him in center field before one of the later innings. Do you remember that at all? No, I don't remember that at all. I don't. Uh, it was. It, it was. That was. That was before. That was before after the Amaros catch. I, I think it might have been. I, I have to go back and, and skip a few back because I haven't finished the entire game yet. But but I, I'm working on it, and it it was just something you know where they were describing. Oh, a fan just ran out to Duke Snyder. It was before one of the later innings. I think it might have been the the seventh. Uh, and and what what inning did Amaros make the catch again? I'm trying to think offhand. I don't. Well, bottom of the. I'm not sure. He replaced. Yes, yeah, he replaced him. He replaced him in the bottom of the sixth inning, bottom and that's sixth. when I the that's seven. when the play happened. Right. Yeah, so that's when the play yeah, happened. So, so it might have been before the top of the seventh. Yeah. Yeah, it was the seventh. I that's what I said. So you know, it's just like nobody had ever spoken about that. I, I wonder about that person. I wonder about that. I, I think it was some random kid. Obviously, he got escorted off. It was Yankee Stadium. He was a Dodgers fan. I'm sure that didn't bode well. But he probably also didn't care that he wasn't ever going to get let into Yankee Stadium ever again. Yeah, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I mean, uh, now that you mention it, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I am interrogating. A, Go, I swear. <laughs> no, I'm a little envious. Uh, now that you bring it up, uh, I'm sorry it wasn't me. But uh, and that, and I would have had the same attitude if I if it were me, I would have had the same attitude that I don't care if I don't get invited back to Yankee Stadium again. But exactly. I can only imagine. So so before we we get off of Game Seven, just talk about the the feeling. Well, where where were you? When that happened, were you out in Long Island? Yeah, I was on Long Island. If I remember right, I was—I think I was in—I uh, I think I was in school actually. And in, it was—it was a day game. And I—I uh, I remember that uh, in those days when we got to the World Series, particularly if involved any of the New York teams, uh, the schools would put it on the PA system. So that because, you know, in those days we did not have cell phones, we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have computers. All we had were the truth. All we had were televisions and nobody could bring a television to the class. So as I remember, the game was being broadcast over the uh, PA and uh, I think that's where I heard it. So at that point, are they completely ignoring schoolwork? Is this just like during World Series play, especially Game 7 of the World Series, are they – kind of thinking, all right, we can do this tomorrow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't have happened if it was a Pittsburgh, uh, uh, a Pittsburgh, Texas World Series. It wouldn't have happened. But you're talking about the Yankees and the Dodgers. And in those days, that was enough to just stop everything. Nothing went, you know, time stopped, everything stopped. The nuclear war would have stopped. I mean, uh, it was the most important thing going on in the world. And uh, uh, if there was a tense moment like that, they they would broadcast. I remember listening to the games on the PA system. I remember that. So, um, it's just it, it. I love the way you phrased it. They, you know, they would have stopped the nuclear war. It's just like no duck and cover. We can't. We won't be able to hear the game properly. Uh, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
So no air uh, raid rules, oh. nothing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, oh man, what 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 was what was it like? So how? Okay, you might have mentioned this earlier. I, I I'm now it's dawning on me where I wanted to, what I wanted to ask you. Where on Long Island were you? How far out were you? Where were you guys again? We lived in Massapequa Park, and we lived. Okay. In, we moved to Mass. We moved to Massapequa Park when it was really wilderness. It literally was a wilderness in 1947. So what was the, 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 of the kids that were in your school, uh, what was the dichotomy of the three teams? Oh, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly the Yankees. Overwhelmingly with uh, a good smattering of New York Giants. I was certainly in the minority with the Dodgers. Way in the minority. Uh, it was overwhelmingly the Yankees and the Giants, and uh, which goes to show how you know there were serious problems with our society if that was the case. Uh, and I'm saying that facetiously, uh, you know, because of it, uh, uh, it was over the population. It was overwhelmingly Yankees and with the Giants. But I was a Dodger fan, and there were a couple of us around. And we wore our caps and our other, uh, you know, uniforms proudly. We were proud to be Dodger fans. So what happened after they, they won? You know, you're you're listening to the game in in the school. Uh, what was the environment like? Well, for the other people who we saw the following days, etc. Uh, maybe I, I could. I, it's hard to remember what they said. Probably like uh, they probably the kids. Well, like kids back then, they probably said something like, "Oh, they were lucky. They'll never be able to do it again." Oh, they would. They did. They, they somehow cheated or something like that. You know, kids say things like that. But uh, in the end, nobody really, nobody be really begrudged the Dodgers winning because they did it honestly. They knew they had paid their dues. They deserved it. They played a great game. And they did have great players. I mean, you had you had the first African American in the history of organized major sports playing in that game, and you had and look at the look at each. If you go position by position, the Dodger team that year could have been the All Star team. And what many people don't realize, well, some people do realize it. Not only could the starting lineup have been the All Star team, many people who don't know about it, don't even realize that the second-string team of the Dodgers that year could have also been in the Hall of Fame of the All-Star team. I mean, you had you had great, great... Look who was, who was Pee Wee Reese's backup in that season. Don Zimmer. I mean, has anybody ever heard of that name? Yeah, you hear of that name? Don Zimmer was the backup shortstop. And uh, you had a whole bunch of... Don Newcomb probably the greatest hitting pitcher in, in modern baseball. And uh, it was just a phenomenal team. So most people, in the end, I think, will re- really realize they earned it, they deserved it, they got it. The fact that Brooklyn went berserk over it is something else, but uh, that, they deserve that too. So let's talk about Brooklyn going berserk. What do you remember? What do you remember about any type of celebration? Was there any celebration out in Massapequa Park? You might have been in the minority, some sort of of craziness. No, no there was. Where I wouldn't know. I mean, uh, if I if I would have started to try to have a celebration, there's a good there's a good chance I would have gotten my head beaten. I'm only kidding, but 
I, I don't think anybody, none of my, none of the people I played ball with out there, you know, Sandlot Ball or what this, none of them were really Dodger fans. I was uh, really all by myself, and uh, there were there were there were a lot of really, t- well, I don't want to get into that, but there were a lot of tough attitudes at that time, uh, Sam. Uh, and the Dodgers were the team that not only integrated professional sports, they were the team that had several. African Americans on the team. I mean, there were no African Americans on the on the Yankees. There were none in Boston. Many of the teams had no had no minorities, and yet the Dodgers, there they were. They broke the ice, and they were leading the way in integrating professional sports. And that bothered people. I mean, that was a different kind of America. That was an America where people had uh, a lot of different values than they have today. And uh, that 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 that's why Jackie Robinson deserves all the commendations he could possibly get. He had to break the ice at that time, and uh, and it, and I'll be quite frank with you. In addition to the fact that there was a lot of anti-African American feeling, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism, a huge amount of anti-Semitism, and uh, and I was part of that that, that target group. So I, I was, you know, for the most part. Not the one to lead a celebration party uh, uh, in that kind of you know atmosphere at that time. So that uh, well, look what they did to Hank Greenberg. So uh, that's a perfect example of uh, uh, of what was going on. And Robinson, by the way, was friendly with Hank Greenberg, but that's an aside. But uh, the Greenberg mm. story is one that should definitely ex- be explored sometime. The man was really yeah. wrongfully denied the batting ch- uh, the home run title. Okay. Yeah. I said uh, another. I, no, my no. wife would say, "My wife would say, you're through pontificating, Joe. Stop pontificating." <laughs> so I'm going to stop. Okay. No, no. Hank Greenberg is a remarkable character, and and uh, from the Bronx, of course. Uh, I forget yeah, exactly what neighborhood again. If you can give me that. Pardon me. Do you remember what he neighborhood played... Hank Greenberg? I don't know where in the Bronx he came. He played for Detroit. I don't know where in the Bronx he came yeah. from. No, yeah, he's from somewhere in the Bronx, and I will look that up at some point. But uh, going back to 1955, Elston Howard was the uh, the first black Yankee, and uh, he was at this point on this team. Um, in fact, he was Josh on the Singel team. Won- he was on the 1955 team at that point. Yeah, oh, um, but I didn't but think that was, was the thing is that I think I, he that might have been either that first year or only the second year of his career. Uh, the Yankees and I think even the Red Sox, even worse, were were uh, slow to come around. And I think the Mer- the American League in general was probably slower than the National League. Yeah, and that, which is unusual because the second African American to play in the major leagues leagues right after Robinson right. was Larry Doby of the Cleveland Indians from Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah, so that. Uh, the, it was a different era. Well, it was a different time. I was going to ask you this about. I was going to ask you this about the '55 team versus the '52 or '53 team. Would you say, even though, like, like for me, learning about this and looking back on it, it's remarkable that neither the '52 team nor the '53 team won a World Series. Would you say those teams were better than the one that ended up winning a World Series? Yes. I I would say I would say that the 55 team won they won on the basis of of endurance and guts and because 
they were fighting. They were actually fighting for a cause. They were fighting for Brooklyn, and uh, but they were already they were already the fifty five team was an already by baseball standards an old team, and you had a couple of those players who were having some physical real physical problems. Robinson was already having some serious problems with his legs. Snyder was having knee problems, uh, so that uh, you had you had some physical problems that were really an impediment uh, as opposed to going to the 52 or 53 teams, which I think were physically physically stronger. And uh, uh, pitching, they may not have been because the Dodger, Dodger pitching was good, but then you had this young rookie in 55 who began to turn things around. You, began, you, had, you had Johnny Padres and... Uh, uh, even though Koufax was on the 55 Dodgers, he was on the bench. Koufax never pitched in 55. He was a rookie. They used to call him bonus baby. So he was a bonus baby back then. You did have Roger Craig, and you did have Don Besant. So that they did they did bolster the team. The Dodgers had pretty good pitching. But I, I my own opinion, I think the 52 or 53 teams were better, better were better teams. Uh, and by the way, the Yankees were also a better team at that point, because by '55 they had some serious physical problems, and uh, that 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 contributed to you know what happened in the series. And it wasn't just because of Mantle; uh, they had some other serious physical problems. Right. You know, it's what's amazing about. Um you know, a player like Yogi Berra is that you just see his name pop up in so many different positions. You know, he's known as one of the greatest catchers of all time, but I mean, you know, that shot of, of Mazeroski's ball going over Yogi Berra's head, who slows hey. down, obviously they, they slow, they, the, the, the TV people slow the, the highlight down. Um, but, but it's such an iconic thing to see. And it's Yogi Berra in left field. Uh, but without going down the 1960 World Series tangent, um, I want to, as we close in on, on an hour, I was wondering, going back to Ebbets Field post the Dodgers leaving. Obviously, the Dodgers held the lease till 1960, at which point Cratter could finally build his his apartment building. And I always like to say that if they had the kind of foresight of of design really that because that's what it was all about that that the the perspective of architecture at the time really you know all these guys were all about every single one of them were about out with the old in with the new basically and and crazy enough in in many ways um not disparaging your father but but uh uh, men like your father who didn't really care for baseball and understand the emotional connection that was going on uh, are what basically helped tear the Dodgers away um, and and led to some of the simplification in architecture as well as no appreciation for, and again, not saying this is what your dad was, was thinking, but when, when thinking about the fact that your dad, what, what was great about your dad was the fact that he uh, saw how passionate you were. But when, when I was thinking about your dad being uh, of the white collar type and not appreciating baseball, it just went for me, it went immediately to the idea of, of so many different uh, older men who 
didn't really have an appreciation for what this meant emotionally for, for an entire borough uh, being what tore it away. So just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting and rate. This is what I'm done pontificating like your wife would say. Uh, but, but going back to my, my point though, afterwards had, had there been any foresight with some of these folks, uh, they would have incorporated the Ebbetsfield facade at least into the apartment building. It would have been part of the renovation. It would have been part of the high rise. They would have incorporated like they, they have in the modern sense with some of these old factories, they would have used the pre-war design that, 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 that was so unbelievably beautiful. And, you know, that, that, this, this, these ideas are what led to not only Ebbets Field being destructed, but also Penn Station being destructed, which was basically the cherry on top that led to a little bit more preservation uh, going forward. But anyway, I'm done with my rant about that. Uh, Ebbets Field post the Dodgers leaving. What, what you, you said that you were still, you, you really enjoyed still once you moved back to Queens going over there because Ebbets Field was nearby. Did you ever go inside? I know during the day when there wasn't some type of event that, that would take place, I know that the, uh, there were some soccer games. Things still happened there. Uh, demolition derbies, I heard. Um, did you ever make your way over there just because it was free to, to enter in the middle of the day? No, I really didn't. Uh, maybe it's unfortunate. After the Dodgers actually moved, that was, what, 58 uh, I had really no desire to go over there. And the ironic thing was that, uh, interestingly enough, when I first uh, started practicing law, uh, I worked for my father-in-law, who was also an attorney, in Brooklyn also. And uh, he sent me to, to deal with, get some papers and meet with some clients of his that were like up on the 14th or 15th floor at the Ebbetsfield Project. Of all the places in the world that I had to send me, he sent me right there. And uh, uh, I did what he asked me to do, but to just just being there and seeing the, what had what was what was no longer there, having remembered what was there, was not a pleasant experience. So uh, I could actually say I, I I have no desire to go over there. I mean, I was I, I had the I had the privilege, honor, and enjoyment of watching the Brooklyn Dodgers play. Uh, I know that Walter O'Malley had his own motives for moving the team. I don't blame Robert Moses, Moses one bit. I blame O'Malley. And uh, uh, it, I have no really desire to see it. I didn't go there during times when there were no ball games. Uh, it, it, to me, it, it, without the Brooklyn Dodgers and Ebbets Field together, there's no nothing there for me. It's the, the only thing I get is satisfaction going to MCU Park to see the uh, Cyclones. Because uh, even though the stadium doesn't look the same at all, it's as much smaller stadium, it's a minor league team, the atmosphere somehow, the Brooklyn atmosphere that was at Ebbets Field has been able to be moved to Coney Island to the MCU Park. It does have the same kind of character and atmosphere. And that I like. And that I go see uh, four or five times every summer. Uh, I want to go down the Cyclones uh, rabbit hole in a second, but um, there was this anecdote uh, from Bob McGee's The Greatest Ballpark Ever. And he said that, you know, there, there was somebody who basically was representative of the Dodgers who, who had to watch over the ballpark uh, after the Dodgers left uh, before 
the Crater organization tore it down. And they, they said that sometimes, you know, uh, working class would, would come in there during their lunch break and, and read newspapers, have lunch, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but there's this, there was this one man who would come in almost every day in the afternoon and just stare, just sit there and stare somewhere in the upper deck, just stare at the field as if he was trying to recapture everything. And, and that's, that's what it, it, there's just something cinematic about that one way or the other that I'm, I, I want to try to capture. And that wouldn't happen until the, uh, the tail end of this hypothetical series that I'm trying to, to build. So uh, going to Cyclones games, uh, I, I completely agree with you, or at least in terms of imagining for me, having never been to Ebbets Field, what it could have been like. Uh, it, it's remarkable because I think the majority of, of the fans there are uh, Met fans. Um, but you, what, what is interesting about the Cyclones is that even though the Mets are the affiliate. Uh, it does seem to bring all of New York baseball together under one Brooklyn roof. Yeah, that that's true. Uh, I I go to those games, and I've been doing it since the Cyclones started, and I show up every time uh, with, uh, with 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 something that's almost the status symbol. I have my original Brooklyn. I have it on now. My original Brooklyn Dodger baseball hat from when I used to go to Ebbets Field. And when I wear it over to uh, MCU Park, it's like a somewhat of a status symbol. And there are others just like me. And when you know, we're kind of thinning our ranks in the in the years. Uh, there are few of fewer and fewer of us, but uh, uh, we I, we try to identify ourselves, and uh, uh, and it helps carry, I think, the atmosphere along. It's it's it it's a good place to play. I don't know. It's hard to describe. The fans over there are very similar to what was in Brooklyn. Ebbets Field was was a friendly place to go. It was an, uh, it's it was it was a place where you knew the people. They were I don't, for the lack of a better word, they were regulars, and uh, I don't think you had to worry about too many things. I mean, it was not. Uh, I don't want to get into what people worry about today, but I don't think you had to worry about those things at Ebbets Field, and uh, uh, you felt I felt safe. I mean, I I, I had no problems. I, I, it was just an enjoyable place to be. And I feel and, the same yeah, about I, MC, and I feel the same about MCU Park. I really do. Otherwise, I wouldn't take my granddaughters there, and I take them there about five times every summer. Yeah. Last summer, it, I had, last summer my granddaughters walk. met. Ed, they met the manager last summer, Edgardo Alfonso. They were photographed with him and, uh, and uh, won, Lindy, Lindy, Indy Chavez. They won the championship last year too. Last year, uh, Alfonso won the championship, and. Uh, you can go and meet the players. You can go meet the manager. They were photographed with him. I mean, it, it's it's the way I think baseball at one time was, and it and it might it'll never be like that again. But it was like that at one time. I mean, you I know, met Happy Felton. I was on the not, I I was I saw the Not Hole Gang from from the field. Well, let's talk about the Not Hole Gang then. Uh, you know, I I. Uh, I, I yeah, so many different places to go, but you just brought up the Knothole Gang. I hope that's a good thing. For those who may not have been in those days, Channel Nine WOR was the uh, was the Dodger station, 
and uh, uh, Happy Felton ran a, a program prior to the game where they would have like little leaguers or, or young folks my age, they would have guests on, and then they would have like a a pepper session, you know, to throw the ball around, hit a little bit, and they'd have one of the either one or more of the Dodger regular teammates come over and uh, do some work with the kids and show them what was going on and uh, talk to them and answer questions. It was it was like a little pre-game warm-up between little league kids and Happy Felton uh, was the host of it, uh, sort of in a way, in a way, sort of like the king over at MCU Park. A little right. bit like that. A little bit like what that. What year did you think this started broadcasting? What what exact year do you think, uh, like, basically the sec- – like, when when did Dodger games start on WOR9? And, and when do you oh. think Happy Felt came about? Oh, God, I, that's – I know that I, – I, I used to watch him on WOR9. I remember Schaefer Beer was the sponsor, and uh, the Yankees were on WPIX. And uh, I don't know where the heck the Giants were. I never even watched the Giants. Who would want to watch them? Uh, I know Gary wouldn't like that, but uh, I don't know what to And I'm trying to remember. I don't, they didn't have many televised games. It was like the brand new thing that was in vogue. There, there weren't, I don't even know if there were night games at that point. But uh, there weren't many well, games that were televised. But I remember watching I... it. I don't know which ones, but I remember watching games on TV. Well, I just wanna I just wanna say that considering that uh, um, it's one of the scenes I'm currently writing, I will say that that the first night game in uh, New York baseball history was June fifteenth, nineteen thirty-eight, uh, at Ebbets Field. Larry McPhail uh, and Johnny Vandermeer, uh, Johnny Vandermeer threw his second no hitter in a row. Still to this day, the only person to ever have done so. Oh. Okay, that's interesting. By the way, maybe maybe some of your listeners would be interested. The most un- I was doing something like this two weeks ago when I was speaking to a group. I think the most unusual name for a ball player in the history of baseball was a Dodger pitcher, and he was a good pitcher too. He was a good pitcher with a name that nobody knows today. And and they even have a. I was listening to the other day to the song that they wrote about him. And do you know who I'm talking about? Van Lingo Mungo? Van Lingo Mungo. Van Lingo Mungo. And uh, if you say that to somebody, they'll look at you and say, what's wrong with you, or something like that. How many ballplayers have a name like Van Lingo Lingo Mungo? I mean, the Dodgers had character. I mean, they also had a a pitcher who lost, who made a, who screwed up, made a, missed, missed the ground ball, and then had the, had the courage or gall or temerity to say that he lost it in the sun. Imagine telling somebody you lost catching a ground ball in the sun. Probably but the most right. famous thing that Billy Lowe's ever did was made that, to make that statement. But here's the funny thing, and you can probably attest to having been at Ebbets Field. It's hard for me to fully understand but when you look at certain pictures, you know, it's not like there were any skyscrapers around. The sun could have very easily been peering through uh, uh, the back of, of the facade, of the, the basically the, the third base facade, uh, as, as it's set. Now, you're right. It could have very easily come through the way the stadium was designed and the fact that it could have come in through one of those lower decks coming in. Absolutely. I don't think Lowe's made, you know... 
How could he make something like that up? How could you know? It just it, it just sounds very strange, but it does. Knowing Ebbets Field, it it could very well feasibly make sense. You're right. You're absolutely right. You I agree with that. Oh, um, I. <laughs> I, I had a place to go, but I completely spaced on it. But I, I think, oh, yeah, Van, Van Lingle Mungo, right. So it's interesting that you mentioned this Van Lingle Mungo. i got to learn how to pronounce his name as I'm writing about him. Um, I, it's funny that you mention him right now because I actually have, have his Wikipedia open on my desktop. And so I'm going to read, quote, unquote, the character section. Um Stories and anecdotes about Mungo tend to emphasize his reputation for combativeness, including yes. episodes of drinking and fighting. Mungo and I got along just fine, reported Casey Stengel, his manager on the Dodgers. I won't stand for no nonsense, and then I duck. <laughs> the most widely told story concerns a visitor to Cuba, a visit to Cuba, where supposedly Mungo was caught in a compromising position with a married woman by her husband. Mungo punched the husband in the eye, leading him to attack Mungo with a butcher knife or machete, requiring Dodgers executive Babe Hamburger to smuggle Mungo in a laundry cart to a seaplane, waiting off a, a, war, a wharf in order to escape the country. Then Mungo wasn't just a pistol off the field. On the field, he was bent towards conflict with his teammates and managers. There are several stories of run-ins and conflicts with his teammates and managers. Once, while he was protecting a small margin of victory, outfielder Tom Winsett botched a routine fly ball that cost Mungo a victory. Mungo retreated to the dughouse and clubhouse to destroy what he could destroy and throw into the field of play what he could not destroy. Mungo sent his wife a telegram stating the following, Pack up your bags and come to Brooklyn, honey. If Winsett can play in the big leagues, it's a cinch you can too. It is also true that Van Lingo Mungo probably paid more in fines than any player of his era, amassing a grand total in his estimation of over $15,000. Yeah, yeah. He was a real character. And uh, the Dodgers had some interesting, really, they had people. It was a team with a lot of character. Some of it might not have been the best character, but uh, they had character. And unfortunately, the one who had the best character of all is the one that did not get his due, and that's Gil Hodges. So that it's uh, really, uh, it, I look at I look at this baseball that I have in front of me, and I, it just flashes back thousands of memories I have uh, of, of these guys watching them play. Uh, yeah. Uh, and hopefully it can be the right the right can be wronged this uh, coming December. Um, yeah, it's there's so many there's so uh, much to talk about one way or the other. But I um I, I think we're going to have to wind this one down. Uh, and oh, okay. uh, Joe Margolin, I just want to make sure I keep I, I, I every time I'm saying your name correctly, right? Margolin. Margolin. Joe Margolin. Margolin. Joe Margolin. Uh, we, we like to finish uh, with our last word, uh, so I'm going to pass it over to you for anything that you'd like to, to finish with. Um, but uh, let me first say thank you so much for joining us today. It, it's just been such a remarkable journey uh, to, to talk about all of this with you. Uh, so many different places to go, and I'd love to have you on again sometime. We, we definitely have more things to discuss. 
Well, it's, it's been a pleasure, and uh, it gave me a chance to think about things that I haven't thought about for a long time and uh, I, and that I like to think about. At a time when there are so many things that I don't want to think about, this is, this is something that's worth thinking about. And I would just like to say that uh, to, to your listeners, yourself, in closing, that uh, it, the, the really important thing, if you, if you, whether you were a Dodger fan or whether you're just a baseball fan, is that you should contact the Hall of Fame and tell them that this December they should really, really do the right thing. And I thank you. And I thank you, and I thank you for getting that word out. Uh, anything that we can do, however possible, uh, the campaign needs to grow. Everybody needs to know how important this is. Everybody who's voting needs to know how important this is. We need to get Gil Hodges into the Hall of Fame, ASAP, right. uh, if not before. <laughs> so, I agree. ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for listening. And, and Joe Margolin, thank you so much for for helping us uh, go down to Brooklyn and Ebbets Field. Uh, much appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the Bedford and Sullivan podcast for today. Uh, catch us next time. We're going to be here next week with Stephen Ke- uh, Keene, excuse me, uh, who uh, uh, formerly of the Crane Pole Society. So uh, that, that is going to be fun talking a little bit, bit Brooklyn about him. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us today. Take care. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.